Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. Hi, my name is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all students can achieve at high levels, no matter what their background. So we're visiting school districts that demonstrate what's possible. This is part two of a three-part episode exploring Chicago public schools, which Stanford University scholar Sean Reardon has said improves its students' performance the most of any large or moderate-sized district in the country. He told me he wants to know why. So what's going on in Chicago that leads to this kind of rapid increase in performance over the late elementary and middle school years? Um, I would like to know that, right? So in part one, we looked at the data that demonstrates how profound Chicago's improvement has been from its low point in the 1980s, and we heard about the early efforts to change. In this part, we'll keep following the story to see if we can identify the key elements of Chicago's improvement. In part three, we'll see how those elements play out in actual schools. We left off the last part saying that the creation of local school councils in 1988 had the effect of dispersing power throughout the city. The councils broke the stranglehold of a central office that had been widely seen as corrupt, and it put power into the hands of people who deeply cared about their neighborhood schools. Some folks had worried that parents and community members wouldn't be knowledgeable enough to make good decisions about hiring principals and adopting school budgets, but the worst of their fears weren't realized. Many local school councils worked really well, and their schools made progress. But that progress was uneven. Racially integrated and more affluent schools tended to make bigger strides. Chicago is a very segregated city, so this meant that many African-American children from low-income homes were left behind in those first 10 years of reform. But the decentralization did two other really important things. The first is that it provided a way for foundations to enter the picture. Here's Peter Martinez, who for many years was the grant officer for the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. There were a group of foundations. There were 17 foundations at the time here in the city of Chicago that were heavily involved uh, in this whole grassroots effort to bring about the School Reform Act. And the three biggest ones were heavily involved, which would have been the MacArthur Foundation, the Chicago Community Trust, and the Joyce Foundation. And then in addition to them, there were, uh, you know, another uh, uh, 14, uh, you know, foundations of smaller caliber. But all of those people uh, had representatives on a single committee that met on a regular basis and talked about what they were going to do to support. This was a concentrated, uh, you know, foundation support effort uh, where they would meet with the academic community and the grassroots community and the business community uh, to talk about, how, you know, what would need to be done to move all of this stuff forward. Foundations provided a lot of money for a whole slew of initiatives from improving the education of the teaching force to developing better curricula. The other thing the decentralization provided was an opening for researchers to study school change as it was happening on a rather large scale. 
Those two things were related because foundations provided the money to the University of Chicago to start the Consortium on School Research. Before we talk about the research the consortium conducted, we need to mention that seven years after the establishment of the local school councils, Chicago's mayor, Richard Daley, convinced the state legislature to give control of the district to him rather than the school board, giving Chicago a unique governance structure. I think one thing that's really interesting about Chicago is it has this mixed governance model where we have local school councils that have authority over local neighborhood schools. But we also have a pretty strong central office. That's Elaine Allensworth. She is director of the consortium. The first CEO hired by Mayor Daley was Paul Vallis. He was what you could call a disruptor who angered a lot of people. But he is widely credited with getting the district's finances in order and beginning a massive construction program to build and renovate schools. I'm going to bring back Terry Mazzani for a minute. We heard from him in part one, and we left off just as he was starting to work for the Chicago Community Trust. This is now 2001. Uh, first person I met with was a young man who was chief of staff to Paul Vallis, and we both you know, just ruminated, gee, if we were in charge of the school district, what would we do? And we both pegged literacy as the top priority. Uh, and then, sure enough, two months later, he, that person, was Arnie Duncan, became the CEO of the schools. Arnie Duncan was CEO of Chicago Public Schools from 2001 to 2008 when he left to become U.S. Secretary of Education. As urban superintendents go, that was a very long run. During his Chicago tenure, he brought in a highly respected high school principal to be his chief education officer. They launched a number of literacy efforts. They did lots of other things as well. But key to this part of the story was that they deepened and formalized the relationship with the Chicago Consortium. Right from the start, the idea was that the research and information produced by the consortium would be helpful to educators, parents, local school councils, everyone connected with Chicago public schools. You know, actually keep, keeping track of what's happening in schools and holding schools accountable. And that, I think, eventually led to um, also an emphasis on having really strong data systems in the district. That's Elaine Allensworth again. She says that those data systems have helped everyone understand what is happening in the schools. But the job of the consortium was not just to describe what's happening, but why. Answering the question why is one of the hardest things any researcher can attempt to do. And the researchers at the Chicago Consortium are extremely careful and cautious. They spent years looking at schools that improved and schools that didn't. They matched them for demographics, funding, size, and other factors. And they found that even schools that seemed identical from the outside performed differently. In their first big extensive study of local school councils, they found that the councils worked best when there was a principal who had a vision for the school and who helped councils understand that vision. They also found that schools worked best when they had something that isn't often talked about in discussions of school improvement, and that is trust. When the people at the, at the school building level were able to work effectively together, there was, there was strong relational trust. That's Tony Brike, the founder of the Chicago Consortium, who is now at the Carnegie Foundation. He co-wrote a book in 2002 titled Trust in Schools, a Core Resource for Schools. 
Researchers at the consortium continued their work, sending out extensive surveys to parents, teachers, and students that measured the trust people felt in their schools. But they were also looking for collaboration, commitment, all kinds of things. So, for example, they asked teachers how often they observed other teachers' classrooms and how many teachers in their school felt responsible for the learning of all students. We're going to hear what they found in a few minutes. But while they were doing their work, there was lots of other work going on in Chicago. I mentioned that there were all kinds of initiatives to improve the education and training that Chicago teachers were getting, and that was important. But now I'm going to bring in someone new into the story. His name is Steve Tozer. Back when Chicago's school reform effort started, he was a professor at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. He told me, As I was a teacher quality guy, by this, he means he was focused on things that would improve teachers, selection, hiring, training, all that kind of stuff. Here's the reason he was so focused on teachers. I believed long ago that, um, that um, the quality of classroom instruction was the key to low-income kids' success, because those are the kids I'd always worked with. In this, Tozer was following a lot of national research that said that the most important school factor that helped students learn is the classroom teacher. He thought naturally enough, that the most effective way to improve schools was to improve the teaching force. But I want you to hear how his thinking changed over time, because it's a central point. What I thought was you could, first of all, you could do a better job in your teacher ed program. Then I began to believe the teacher ed program is inevitably a weak treatment. There are not enough resources to make teacher ed programs a powerful treatment. So then I thought, hmm, Maybe it's all about the induction years of schools. By induction years, he means the first few years a teacher is in the classroom. So down in Champaign-Urbana, when I was department head down there, I started to work out a model for teacher induction and mentoring down there to develop new teachers. And I brought that, that sort of orientation with me to Chicago. Toes were moved from Champaign-Urbana to the University of Illinois, Chicago, with the idea that the key to improving classroom instruction was to have really strong mentoring programs for new teachers to help them build their skills and knowledge of how to teach students in their first few years on the job. He convinced state officials to change the way teachers earn their credential to teach in Illinois. We changed it, um, but we built in a significant requirement for new teacher mentoring. Tozer designed a program for Chicago public schools that provided high-quality mentors for new teachers to help develop their classroom instruction. For seven years, he oversaw the mentoring program, and he observed the results. He was surprised by what he found. When principals understood it, it was a flaming success, and when they didn't understand it, we may as well not have done it. Oddly enough, the principals who got it almost didn't need this mentoring program from us. You know, they welcomed the resources. But principals who got the power of developing teachers got it anyway. In other words, the program he had been convinced would improve schools didn't work. Or rather, it didn't work unless new teachers had principals who understood how to make mentoring effective. The reason he was surprised was that at the time, principals weren't widely thought of as key to school improvement. They certainly weren't thought of as having anything to do with whether teachers improved their instruction or not. Meanwhile, back at the MacArthur Foundation, Peter Martinez was funding other work within the Chicago schools. Specifically, he was funding an effort to get good literacy programs into schools. I know that this is a well-researched approach 
to literacy. I've you know I've studied the thing. I've, I've I've looked at it. I've watched it. Uh, you know, in terms of implementation. And the one thing that's becoming very clear to me, when he goes into a school that does not have a strong instructional leader, no matter how good his program is, it goes nowhere. And I'm putting money down the drain. Uh, and and uh, I'm beginning to see that on a lot of the grants that I'm making, that's what happens. This whole leadership thing, and, and then I started, you know, Steve and I started comparing notes because he was funding me to do a project that for seven years showed us that principals, A, were making or breaking the money we were putting into these schools. And so I decided if I was serious about quality of student learning and serious about quality of instruction, that I was going to have to actually start to focus on principals and school leaders as the, as the key ingredient. What Steve Tozer and Peter Martinez were discovering in the early 2000s was about to be validated by some major national research. Researchers at the University of Washington studied 180 schools in nine states over six years. In 2004, they reported that they had not seen any school that had improved in the absence of what they called talented principals. The question now was, what to do with this information? The fact is, educators were not used to thinking of principals as being all that important. Just to take one example, the credential needed to be principal is often shockingly easy to obtain. Here's Steve Tozer again, talking about the situation in Illinois as it was in 2008. In a state with only 400 principal vacancies, a nearby university had 1,700 principal candidates in its program. And this <laughs> one university out of 27 at that time preparing principals had 1,700. And it wasn't even the largest in the state because the largest in the state was an online program. So online programs became and be, have become the largest producers of principals uh, in many areas of the country. And that means you can get a principalship in your jammies. The fact is that every state has way more people who have the credential to become principal than people who actually want to be principals. The principal credential is often a way for teachers to get a boost in pay. Tozer and Martinez took aim at that situation in two ways. First, they designed a new kind of principal preparation program at the University of Illinois Chicago, or UIC. They wanted to prepare principals specifically to take on racially isolated high-poverty schools. Those were the schools that had mostly been left behind in the first 10 years of school reform. The program was highly selective. Candidates had to undergo a rigorous application process designed to weed out anyone who wouldn't help teachers improve instruction. And they had a cohort model, meaning that a group of principal candidates all began at the same time. By going through the same experiences at the same time, principal candidates developed a support network. The program also provided coaching and mentoring for their graduates who became principals. Uh, and our, our approach to this is dramatically different. It's small numbers, high intensity, and ensuring that every candidate who graduates is capable of leading a school to improve performance. It took a while before Chicago Central Office administrators paid attention. Back then, 93% of principal vacancies were being filled by the assistant principal of the school. Steve Tozer calls that a recipe for stagnation. Because we heard a lot of complaints 
uh, coming from the central office. Well, there's nothing that we can do anymore because we don't have any control over who the principals are. Remember, the local school councils, or LSCs, had been given the power to hire principals in the 1988 School Reform Act. And we said, not true. The School Reform Act puts you in a position to set up criteria beyond uh, that that's established by the state. They, the, that legislation enabled them to set up their own credential for who would be eligible uh, to be uh, principals. Now, those uh, uh, grassroots people in those LSCs will be able to hire from among people that you have said are eligible to do this job well. And it took us probably about two or three years of conversations before they began to uh, you know, finally set something like that up. But they did, and that became the real uh, you know, beginning of, of, of really being able to address this whole issue of leadership in a very systemic way. Over time, graduates of UIC's program started being hired. They tended to go to higher-need schools, and their schools started improving faster than the rest of the schools in the district. Once they could demonstrate real results, Tozer and Martinez led an effort to change the law again. They wanted all principal preparation programs to be selective, require an internship, and provide coaching. All existing principal preparation programs in the state were decertified. Only those that met new standards were recertified. Illinois went from having 30 programs granting thousands of principal certifications a year to 26 programs preparing fewer than 700 principal candidates. And those online programs where you could become a principal in your jammies? Illinois doesn't have them anymore. Meanwhile, back at the consortium, researchers had spent years figuring out why some schools improved and others didn't. In 2010, the researchers at the consortium published their findings in a book called Organizing Schools for Improvement. They had found that if schools were strong on what they called the five essentials, they were 10 times more likely to improve than schools that were weak on the five essentials. 10 times. That's huge. So what are those five essentials? Ambitious instruction, collaborative teachers, involved families, supportive environment, and effective leaders. And they didn't just say effective leaders are essential. They said they are key to establishing the other four essentials. So within a few years of each other, you have some of the key players in Chicago's school reform community all coming to the conclusion that principals are central to improving schools. That doesn't mean that they think teachers are unimportant. Far from it. And what we know from the data, again, we're so fortunate to have such great research here, is that good principals keep good teachers. That's Heather Anaccini, head of the Chicago Public Education Fund, another key foundation player. Making that bet on principals for us is absolutely still a bet on great teachers and, and, a, and an ecosystem that supports great educators across the city of Chicago. So let's recap a bit. Chicago has had a lot going on since 1987 when Bill Bennett called it the worst school system in the country, a statement which, at least in part, galvanized the city to support the improvement of the schools. 
Foundations invested in lots of different efforts, but one of the key things they invested in was long-term research that could tell them what actually led to improvement and what didn't. And it proved that the one key thing that helped schools improve is an effective leader who builds trust and collaboration within the school and with parents and community members. That may seem simple, but it represents a huge step forward, both intellectually and institutionally. In our next part, we'll see how that plays out in actual Chicago schools. In the meantime, I hope you will go to our website, www.edtrust.org slash Extraordinary Districts, and look at the resources we have there. Among other things, we link to videos about the Principal Preparation Program at the University of Illinois Chicago made by the Wallace Foundation. By the way, the Wallace Foundation also provided support for this podcast. If you'd like to join a Twitter conversation about this podcast, use hashtag Extraordinary Districts. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.